0: California, people don't always realize, is one of the most important hotspots for biodiversity in the world. And like many other parts of the world, we're facing a a massive extinction crisis, addressing decarbonization through both legislation as well as through other actions. As chair of the Natural Resources and Water Committee this year, I was able to work as part of the working group on the green budget trailer package, the green infrastructure implementation package that we passed this year. And we were able to land that in a place that I think where all sides felt like they had a stake in it, where we are addressing real concerns around extinction and trying to preserve our climate and beautiful open spaces.
1: Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Sacktown Talks. Today, we're glad to be joined again by Senator Dave Min. Dave, how's it going? Thanks for joining us.
0: Going well, I'm down here in Orange County. It's another beautiful day, so uh, can't complain
1: yeah there's a a lot of beautiful days down in there in Orange county I guess I guess except for this year, this is the one uh, random year where it's been a little little cold down there, huh?
0: I love flooding, but you know I'll take it over uh, other parts of the country honestly. I was just in Laguna Beach, it was in the seventies uh doing an oversized check presentation for some money we got them and uh and just thinking on the way back, what a, what a fortunate guy I am to represent. Yeah. A district like Rough this. job.
1: Somebody, somebody's yeah. got to do it. <laughs> uh, you know, last time we talked what, about three years ago, we were in the midst of COVID and you just kind of got elected, kind of give us a little recap of, of the last three years and kind of how you settled into your role here up in here in Sacramento.
0: Sure. Yeah. And so, uh, like what I tell people in 2016, I was minding my own business as a law professor at UC Irvine. And, and I honestly thought politics would be the last thing I'd ever do with my life, um, Partially because I, I didn't, I, you know, I, I was on a policy track. I was a law professor at what was then a top 25 university law school, uh, which, you know, for folks who are in the law, to you know that that's kind of seen as the pinnacle of the legal profession. Uh, I'd been testifying, I think at that point I testified six times before Congress. I, I'd been on TV a lot uh, and did not think i do politics. The other reason I didn't think i do politics is because um, – I thought I'd be terrible at it I, I was terrible selling magazines as a kid I didn't do like speech and debate club and uh, my very first paid job of any kind was selling cutco knives they're very oh. good knives uh, my mom and dad still have their set I sold them like what 20 30 years ago uh, the their friends have the other set I sold so I sold two sets and and uh, not a natural salesperson but uh, after the 2016 elections just got fired up uh, I'd worked in public policy my whole career and and just felt the need to you know, get engaged. And that somehow ended up with me, uh, you know, in the state Senate in 2020. And we flipped a longtime blue, uh, red seat, blue had never been held by a Democrat in modern times. Uh, my opponent back then, John Morlock, was a Orange County institution. We won right. a close election and proved a lot of people wrong who thought that he would never be defeated, uh, that someone with my profile would would never be able to win. But Uh, I think it speaks to the changing demographics of the district. Uh, I I think it also speaks to the changing politics of our country. And so, uh, you know, I've been privileged to represent such a beautiful area. Uh, And, and, you know, I've not been a politician for long at this point, but I guess my mantra is, um, you know, at a time when when a lot of folks are losing faith in public institutions, uh, one of the things that I feel incumbent to do is just to try to keep my promises, to be transparent and consistent and have integrity. And that means that You know, if if I campaign on an issue, I need to then govern on it. If I campaign on a promise, I need to try to keep that promise. And and that's what I've tried to do in the state Senate. And and not everyone agrees with it. But I think uh, 100 percent of folks will say for good or bad. I've been the politician that I promised I'd be.
1: Right. So how is it, you know, being a law professor, living in theory, saying, you know, this is how things should be done or how we should do things to actually coming in and actually doing it? How, how is the difference? And what what are you thinking? If you were to go teach uh, political science right now, what, you know, what would be different? Yeah. Well,
0: it moves, it moves a lot faster than than academia, obviously. We're, uh, you know, what do we vote on, like three or four thousand bills a year? It's, it's pretty it, intense, yeah. and uh, you know, even those of us who put all of our best efforts into trying to research these bills, trying to read the language. It's an impossible task. Uh, we're, we're basically flying by the seat of our pants sometimes, uh, making educated guesses. And, you know, sometimes we have legislation that we know is like very close. And, and this happens all the time. And I, I'm kind of going with my gut after doing all the research, talking to all the relevant stakeholders. And these are some tough decisions we have to make. And so, uh, unfortunately, I don't get to present all the bills. I don't get to write all the bills. I have to also vote on my colleagues' bills. And sometimes they're written in ways that would not be the way that I'd write them. But, you know, I have to ask myself, will this on net make our state better? Uh, that's a big part of this process. I, I think the other thing, you know, you don't realize until you're in politics is uh, just how important the political elements are, including some of the stuff that, you know, we take for granted. But, you know, I, I've long heard the political science, um, you know, common wisdom that breaking bread with other politicians, other elected officials helps to ease that passage of legislation. And I, I think, you know, a lot of people feel like the end of uh, our members of Congress eating and dining together and, and just hanging out together uh, has led to a lot of the polarization and gridlock we see in the House of Representatives and the United States Senate today. Uh, but actually seeing it up close, you realize these relationships matter, that, you know, you're more inclined to listen favorably for good or bad. And I, I'm someone who tries to vote on the substance as much as I can. But if All you've right. got a relationship with someone, you're more likely to hear them out to, to really, you know, listen and and that works two ways. It's, it's, you know, we've got to build those relationships with other people, including people on the other side of the aisle. Uh, so that's something I'd take away as well. And, you know, but, but is, this is the most rewarding job I've ever had because in academia, uh, you have a lot of theory. You have a lot of ideas. Uh, you spend a lot of painstaking effort trying to build up these important policies. Uh, I can pass a bill, in Cal- particularly in California, where I'm part of the supermajority, uh, just by coming up with a good idea and marshalling the, the right support behind it. Uh, it's been incredibly fulfilling. I think we passed something like 25 bills to date that have been signed into law by the governor. Uh, it is just an honor to be able to do this, uh, to be able to bring money back to my district, to to try to represent people, to, to help people with their problems. Uh, you know, My district office solved over 3,000 EDD cases uh, during the pandemic. Uh, those are 3,000 households that that were able to put food on their table, pay their rent uh, because of the work of our, our staff. So uh, incredibly rewarding. I, you know, I don't get paid the most money, but uh, it, it is incredibly rewarding, and it's ve- I feel very rich in non pecuniary ways.
1: Right. You know, it's interesting. That's one thing you kind of touched upon is, is your district has changed, right? It changed from a conservative red district through and through, and now it's you know purple, maybe tinge blue. Um, yeah. Kind of what what benefits has your district, you know, um, kind of benefited from from you know being elected, being represented by by you and the supermajority.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, first, we, I bring back money, right? <laughs> and uh, that's important. You know, when, when I got elected, uh, Orange County was receiving six cents for every tax dollar that we, our constituents paid. Wow. That's horrible. Uh, and so I don't know that we're like at a dollar, but we're, we're moving in the right direction. Uh, we're able to bring money back for our priorities. And that's in part because I'm part of the supermajority. But it's also in part because, you know, we historically in Orange County have had members of the state legislature that didn't play ball. Uh, they, they were very ideological uh, and did not work well with the other party. Uh, and so I think replacing that with someone who works well with others and, and who's part of the supermajority party means that we're getting more of our budgetary priorities, but also more of our priorities generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been able to pass a, a lot of bills, a lot more than any of my predecessors. Um, and, and that's important because these are often typically bills that are important to my constituents. Uh, we ended gun shows at the Orange County Fairground. Uh, we just passed a bill that I think the governor will sign into law addressing the regulation of electric bikes, which are a growing uh, yeah. issue, but also a growing boon in my district, you know, in Huntington, right. like Huntington, Laguna, and Newport. Uh, rapid adoption, they present a new set of challenges, but we don't want to slow those down. So figuring out rules of the road, literally, uh, is important going forward, uh, addressing coastal erosion or re- addressing climate change. Uh, you know, there, there's so many things we're able to do, and, and again... Uh, It's rewarding, uh, but I think having people in office that are able to get things done, that are able to work well with others,
1: uh, that's important. All right. You know, we just ended session here. You know, you you mentioned a few bills you have on the governor's desk. Kind of what's your ledge package look like and kind of what are some of the wins and what are some of the tough losses you had this year? Uh,
0: So as far as the wins, uh, a lot of them. And and in my time in the Senate, I've I've tried to focus on a couple of different uh, priorities. One is, of course, climate change. Uh, and, and thinking about that in two different modes. One is how do we decarbonize our economy as quickly as possible while also trying to <clears throat> make sure that the lights turn on, that the air conditioning turns on, that we're not uh, creating burdens on people's quality of life. Uh, the other is on preserving open space, uh, addressing biodiversity concerns. And so uh, a big win that we got signed earlier this year was a 30 by 30 bill, which codifies the 30 by 30 goals set in place by the governor, uh, that 30 percent of our lands and coastal spaces are protected by the year 2030. Uh, that's critical. California, people don't always realize, is one of the most important hotspots for biodiversity in the world. And like many other parts of the world, we're facing a, a massive extinction crisis, uh, addressing decarbonization through both legislation as well as through other actions, so I was uh, as chair of the Natural Resources and Water Committee this year, I was able to uh, work as part of the working group on the green uh, budget trailer package, the green infrastructure implementation package that we passed this year. And we were able to land that in a place that I think was, um, you know, where all sides felt like they had a stake in it, where we were addressing real concerns around extinction and uh, permitting and, and, and trying to preserve uh, our climate and beautiful open spaces here while quickly deploying clean energy infrastructure, those are important priorities for this state. Uh, So that's been one silo. Another has been gun violence, and we've had some great bills. We had another bill passed this year that requires training for gun dealers uh, to make sure they're not uh, selling weapons to people who might want to be illegally purchasing them or or doing straw sales on behalf of others. Uh, We passed a number of bills around fire prevention. And a pet passion of ours has been domestic violence because my wife is still a professor at UCI Law dealing with domestic violence. She runs a domestic violence clinic. She heads up UC Irvine's initiative to end family violence, an interdisciplinary center that deals with this vexing problem that crosses all income, racial, and other demographic categories. And we've passed, I think, eight or nine bills related to DV that are all important. So this year, we are able to expand access to evidence needed by victims of domestic violence to try to get judicial relief, uh, allowing electronic records to be provided free. Uh, They're kept basically at at zero cost. Uh, These sometimes have cost thousands of dollars for survivors to be able to access. They need these documents like police reports, uh, witness interviews, things like that, to be able to try to get protective orders and things like that. Uh, So that's been a priority of ours. Um, You know, a couple of the losses we had this year, uh, my offshore oil drilling bill, the bill that would end offshore drilling as soon as is practicable off the coast of California Got held up in committee again. We're going to keep trying again next year. I think there is a pathway next year. There's a study that's being done right now. Um, and I think when that study is done by the Lands Commission, we'll have a real set of numbers that we can apply to this bill. And we're hoping that this bill will have a, a, some real momentum behind it next year. Uh, another bill uh, that I've tried to pass this year which is a bill that would require that all financial institutions that want to do business with our state be divested from the gun industry. And I think that's an important bill. Uh, that bill got held up in its first committee, but again, I think there's a pathway there. I think it's an important bill, not just on you know optics, but I think there's a substantial argument that Wall Street right now is overinvested in the gun industry, and it's one of the key drivers of why we have 400 million guns and counting in the United States. Uh, we got to do something around this problem. I, I just find it just frightening, despicable, uh, you know, unconscionable that we have such a gun violence epidemic in this country that my kids have to go through. Uh, gun violence training all the time. It, yeah. It's it's not something we should live with and accept as normal.
1: Yeah, it was really tough. My kindergartner just had to go through uh, the active shooter training, and he, yeah. you know, he got upset. And I was like, wow, <laughs> this is yeah. this is our life, right? This is what what we have to live with. And yeah. kind of, I guess, more on to that point, like what what can be done to prevent these shootings?
0: <clears throat> uh, you know, we know right now there is like a one to one correlation between more guns and more gun violence. Now we have a Second Amendment. We have a court that has ruled. Very, very broadly, and based really not in text or in precedent around the scope of the Second Amendment. Uh, So we're trying to work within the backgrounds of that. What is constitutional under this court's posture of the Second Amendment? And to me, it's kind of nuts that they're overturning. The Supreme Court is overturning statutes that have been on the books for hundreds of years. Uh, They're taking such a expansive and inventive uh, view of the Second Amendment. But that's that's the background I have to deal with. So. I think we have to do all we can to keep, particularly the semi-automatic, you know, the the high caliber, um, you know, uh, uh, high magazine capacity guns and try to restrict the access to them. You know, we, we hear the other side talk about mental health issues and video games. Uh, well, let's do something about that. Uh, for folks who are exhibiting mental health issues, why is it so easy for them to get guns? Why is it so easy for them to get ghost guns? Uh, we have a court right now that may be poised to end gun violence restraining orders, which is one of the most important tools per, for preventing gun violence, because we know that people who commit domestic violence right. are like by far the likeliest to make, commit gun violence. So there's a lot of things we have to do at this point. It, it, it's not always sexy or, or like headline grabbing. A lot of it's technical, uh, but anything we can do to try to ensure that guns are being distributed more responsibly and more judiciously and, and more slowly, I, I think, These are important things. So I've supported all these bills. I supported the ammunition tax. And that's the only tax I've ever supported in the state legislature. Uh, But I just think that's an important one. We we have to do something around this gun violence epidemic. We know what needs to be done. But unfortunately, the courts are blocking us from a lot of this. So we have to figure out inventive ways around that.
1: You know, it's kind of interesting, I'm sure as a law professor, uh, enacting laws which maybe kind of push the boundaries and kind of this is, I guess, what Republicans have been doing for years with Roe v. Wade, right? Yep. Everyone thought it was a pipe dream for Roe v. Wade to be overturned. And it finally happened. Um, can you kind of speak to that about kind of, you know, in gun safety or some other areas where you guys are trying to push the envelope to kind of yeah. um, see if you can affect change?
0: And This is something I've been talking about with um, the leaders of some of our major gun violence prevention groups. Uh, as well as with, um, you know, abortion rights groups, for that matter. We should be doing the same thing that the other side's done for decades, uh, which is we should be passing laws and and figuring out what laws to pass that might create favorable precedents for us, or alternatively, that might force the courts, some of these extremists, to display their hands. Uh, We've seen a number of really nonsensical rulings out of the Supreme Court in, in the past couple of years uh, I, I think future courts will hopefully be pointing some of the language and pointing out the inconsistencies in, say, the reasoning of a justice like Alito, right, or Amy Coney Barrett, and using that to tear down some of these decisions that they have passed, uh, really 5-4, a, a you know, majorities. Uh, we ought to be thinking about that proactively. And, and so I'd be very inclined to do that. But on guns, we really should be thinking about not just, is this constitutional, but also, if it's not, what does that mean as far as the precedent that it sets going forward. Uh, so I'd love to continue that project with you know groups like American Constitution Society, with Brady and Giffords, uh, and also with some of the abor- abortion rights group, Planned Parenthood, NARAL. We should all be working to figure out, in the face of a judiciary that has shown that they don't feel tethered by the actual words of the Constitution or by past precedent, even precedent going back to the founding days of our Constitution. Uh, how do we start to chip away at this? Because the actual process of replacing those judges on the bench is going to take a long,
1: long time. Yeah, definitely. Um, as chair of the Natural Resources Committee, I'm sure you have a lot of things come across your desk. But you know, as you just noted, we have these, uh, you know, these things set in forth that we have to do by 2030. Kinda how realistic are these goals to get electrification um, of vehicles and you know, 100% renewable um, by these set times?
0: They're realistic. They, they're just, they're aggressive. And, and and the question we have to answer is um, how much can we push this? Like the technology is almost there. Uh, you know, if if you talk to folks in, in different clean tech industries, you know, we, we have the ability right now to put more than a hundred percent of our energy supply a- as renewables, wind, solar, et cetera. Um, and, and that's not even counting future technological advances that will probably improve the efficiency Of some of these different technologies. Uh, But as as has been noted by a lot of folks, it's going to take a lot of political pressure, a lot of dollars, a lot of investment to get us there. Right. I I was in Egypt last year for the climate conference and I took a day trip out to Cairo. And I just remember seeing the tens of thousands of cars. They don't have the catalytic converters. So like they they spew out like the, the black smoke and they really smell. Right. And, you know, it's a poor area. You've got millions of people in Cairo alone. Um, You know, you multiply that by every country across the world. How do you replace all those fossil fuel burning cars with renewable cars? Right. That's a challenge. How do we if if say we go to like a 90 percent of our light duty fleet is electric uh, by the year 2045? How do we um, ensure that there's enough electric transmission and renewable generation online to be able to charge those cars? These are real challenges we face. And we have to start thinking about them. And I was just at New York Climate Week a couple of weeks ago. And one of the points I raised there is like, we need to be thinking about this as far beyond the headlines at this point. The stuff we need to do next is not sexy. It's very technical and complicated. It is deep policy think. It's like, how do we decarbonize asphalt production? Uh, how do we decarbonize these hard to decarbonize parts of our economy, right? Uh, how do we start replacing gas burning stoves with electric stoves? You know, like like these are all questions we have to start thinking about, but the adoption has to to happen quickly. The technology is almost there. Mm -hmm. Uh, The last hurdles we need on on technology are really around storage and maybe some transmission. Um, But, you know, I I think we're pretty close to that. The next question is deployment. And that's trillions of dollars we're talking about. But I also see this as an opportunity for California, for the United States. Uh, We know the future is green. And China and Germany certainly are realizing as a matter of their economic policy that the economies that embrace this first, that are the, the, the first adopters, the first movers, uh, will be in a good position to dominate the world economy going forward. Uh, I think California, and pr- I, I make this case all the time, my part of Orange County reminds me a lot of Silicon Valley back in the 1980s. I think we have all the requisite ingredients to be an epicenter for green innovation uh, but, but if we can capture a good part of that, if we can be the hub of green innovation, California or elsewhere in the United States, uh, we're going to benefit for, for not just like uh, decarbonizing, not just saving the planet, but as far as the jobs we're creating, the, the economic growth we're creating for, the, for generations going forward. So I think this is a great opportunity for us, even as we're facing an existential challenge for our civilization.
1: Yeah, it's kind of interesting, uh, you know, you know, they had the Oppenheimer film come out and kind of, kind of showed when you get a group of smart people together and they work hard and they, you know, come through a breakthrough and, you know, it is, it is possible. Um, kind of what 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 are some of the technologies that, you know, you've seen lately or heard about that you think are on the brink of coming out that are, that are really going to help us?
0: Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of different ones around, um, someone's just telling me there's a, he has a technology that will remove salt from like farmland very efficiently which sounds random, but like that could actually be a big boon to us because we were facing agriculture issues. Right. Uh, I think a, a lot of this stuff like in Orange County, this isn't like necessarily new technology, but we just had a uh, new groundwater um, treatment plant. So what, what they're doing is, you know, the model of treating sewage water uh, and then sending it directly into households, you know, has, has understandably met with some resistance Right. Uh, because people are like a little wary of that, quote unquote, toilets to taps idea of, of where their drinking water comes from. Uh, what we're doing in Orange County with this brand new facility that just opened up in Found Valley is uh, toilets to groundwater to taps. So we're, we're treating the t- sewage and then releasing the treated water into our groundwater reserves. Uh, and then when it's needed, that groundwater then is taken and filtered again and put into our, you know, uh, uh, our general usage uh, around decarbonization. Uh, I've heard different models of aviation, whether it's electric or hydrogen. I think that's an important one to conquer because uh, aviation is something we need in the modern economy. We all need to fly places. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the, the challenges of generating the energy that we need for aviation are real. And so I've heard different models for that. So I think that's one that will be important. I think storage is important, like long duration storage, shorter duration storage, Uh, whether that is new innovations and efficiency gains in batteries, um, you know, and and alternative, you know, sources. Right now, there's a big boom in lithium, but the mining of lithium is is very, very carbon intensive, uh, has a lot of negative impacts on surrounding communities. Uh, Are there other elements we can use to try to be the core elements or minerals uh, for batteries, Uh, high storage, high capacity batteries, uh, so storage is a big one. Transmission efficiency is another one. So, again, th- there's a ton of different things we could do. As- asphalt production, which I mentioned, is something right. where, where we're looking at different models of how to reduce and eventually decarbonize completely asphalt production. Uh, so a ton of different stuff happening around the world right now. And it's kind of exciting. You hear about innovations all over the place. Uh, I, I should mention I was in Israel last year and I toured a company that is all about – um what they do is basically they've created a system that runs on air conditioning. It, it, it cools your air conditioning. So what they do is that they, they tap into the grid during uh, high production parts of the day and low demand. Uh, so maybe evenings or early mornings when it cool and, and say solar is generating a lot, they will then cool a coolant that runs parallel to the air conditioning. So you can air condition a building uh, without creating the stresses on the grid that air conditioning does. So we all remember like in August, uh, two years ago, when we had to, like we got those text alerts saying, turn off your air conditioning, otherwise the grids will all go out. Right. Uh, we had those rolling blackouts or brownouts. Uh, this system would get rid of that. So sorry if I'm being geek- geeky here, but there's a lot of stuff happening. No, yeah. It's really, really fascinating. And and a lot of really smart people around the world are working on different facets of this. And uh, my view as a policymaker is, we just need to encourage more of this. Um, we need to do more things at the federal level, like the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, at the state level, we need to continue passing Uh, laws and policies that incentivize uh, more green innovation, R&D, and implementation.
1: Yeah. You know, a lot of things you touched upon are kind of attacking the point sources, right? Making sure more carbon doesn't get released into the air. There's a lot of talk about carbon capture. Kind of what are your thoughts on this and taking carbon that's already in the air and putting it back underground?
0: Yeah, I I support all, like I'm one of these guys that's not a purist. Anything that might help us, you know, I've, I've, I've heard from some of my Uh, Colleagues in different spaces that are more pessimistic on carbon capture. I've heard from people that are much more optimistic on carbon capture. My view is I'm not a scientist. Let's keep funding these types of projects and research. Uh, If carbon capture at the end of the day is effective and efficient, how amazing would that be? Because we could reverse the trends on climate change. Uh, on the other hand, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. It, it's, you know, it's, it's like being a venture capitalist at this point. We have to invest in all different types of innovation, not knowing which ones will be successful 10 years from now. We really have to take a portfolio approach, understanding that the, the gains here are not necessarily money. They may be, but it's more about what technologies will really help us turn the tide on our carbon emission trends and and, and ultimately on the climate change that we're seeing.
1: Yeah. You know, something you touched upon earlier uh, was domestic violence and stuff you've been working on in the domestic violence space. Can you kind of talk about the challenges, how hard it is to kind of pass, you know, different, um, you know, public safety bills here in California?
0: Yeah, no. And there's always a challenge with um, public safety just because, look, there there legitimately has been a history of both real and perceived racially targeted policing and enforcement, Right and so whether in and i'm not black, i'm not brown, um i'm also not white. um but i i know that there are people in my community here in orange county uh people i've talked to who tell me that because they're black they get pulled over every day outside their house. So, you know they live in an affluent neighborhood. uh that that they are worried about their kids and they have to have the talk with their kids about you know interacting with law enforcement, what that might lead to. um They, of course, have the disproportionate prosecution Mm -hmm. and likelihood of being convicted if they're ever uh, accused of a crime in court. Uh, So so we know that there have historically been a lot of trends towards racially biased law enforcement, Um, and and that is where a lot of my colleagues are operating from. Uh, At the same time, I I think there's a real concern in my district and, and really across California that they want their policymakers to... Keep them safe. That this is a fun. They see this as a fundamental duty of our government to keep people, their bodies and their properties safe from harm or, or dispossession by others. And so I think we have to strike the right balance, and and that's always been challenging. I, I know there's people that you know have black and white lines. I tend to see this is, these issues more in shades of gray. Um, I know there's people out there who have taken the line that they will not pass another bill or support another bill that expands the scope of what is prosecutable until we have demonstrated changes and improvements in racially neutral policing. And to me, that seems unfair because look, at the end of the day, there are crimes, including domestic violence, uh, where it is appropriate to consider expanded penalties or expanded scopes of prosecution. Um, But I do also worry about the racially biased policing. So uh, I've tried to take a a mixed view. I've supported bills that look into police accountability. I, I supported the police decertification bill by Senator Bradford a couple years ago, SB2. Uh, I've also tended to vote no or abstain from a lot of the bills that uh, carte blanche just, you know, change the rules and decriminalize things that, that we think are de- that should be criminal, uh, that, that let people out early without having served their time. Um, you know, so I, I try to take that view and, and understanding that, that, that there are very mixed opinions on, on what we should be doing around law enforcement, around public safety in this state. Uh, But at the same time, I do view one of my paramount duties as a state senator to try to keep my community safe.
1: Right. You know, it's interesting. I I drove around Orange County, the whole county, uh, city streets and everything, a few months ago, um, trying to avoid traffic. And I was just amazed. I did not see one homeless tent um, or very any homeless at all. And I was just kind of taken aback of, you know, driving around Sacramento or San Francisco or other cities. And it's, you know, it's a real big problem. What is Orange County doing right that other counties um, can emulate to kind of help solve homelessness?
0: Yeah, well, we, and we do have our homeless problem. I just want to be clear, but um, you know, I I think there's a few things that that we're doing differently and some of it's good, some of it's bad. I mean, historically we have made it clear to those who are housing vulnerable you're not welcome here. And, and there's been stories of people getting driven out to other parts of the state uh, from our parts of Orange County. Um, and of course, that's just sweeping the problem under the rug. But what we do right and we do a lot of things right. Uh, we try to provide housing for people. We try to provide uh, temporary shelter. We try to provide um, permanent supportive housing. and uh, We have some really innovative models here in Orange County. We have a Be Well campus. Uh, That is a series of different uh, types of shelters that have paired mental health services funding, i.e. the supportive part of it, uh, with housing funding. And I think that is part of what I think needs to happen across California. And I know the governor has been working hard on this, uh, but we need to understand that for some people who are housing insecure or homeless, uh, the problem is just housing, that, that they just need a shelter over their head. And by the way, we ought to intervene early and aggressively there because the longer one is homeless, the data is very clear, or housing insecure, the more likely one is to develop mental health issues, substance abuse issues. And, and so I always tell anyone who asks me, by the time you see someone on the streets in, in a state where they're clearly, you know, mentally ill, they have probably been homeless or housing insecure for many months, if not many years. Uh, we have allowed that situation to develop. and And if we intervene early in that cycle... Uh, we can hopefully turn those people back into being productive taxpaying members of society, your neighbors. But if we don't intervene, they end up in that state. So th- it's very cost effective for us as the government to try to get in early with housing. Um, but, but dealing with those people who are on our streets, I think we have to understand that a lot of times they need more than just a roof over their heads. They need significant support. Uh, they need support with social reintegration, with job training, uh, with substance abuse issues, with mental health issues. Some of them need to honestly be in institutions. Uh, but for those who are not at that stage, they still need a lot of help getting back into an integrated space. Uh, otherwise, if you just give a roof over their head temporarily, they're going to be back on the streets soon. Right. And that is something I think we've learned really, really well here in Orange County. Uh, we have a lot of different models for this, but, but I think one thing they're all doing is they're trying to figure out ways to pair any kind of federal, state, or local mental health services type funding with actual housing funding. And I think that's part of the secret sauce that we need to be thinking about at a larger scale across the country.
1: No, it makes a lot of sense. Um, You know, kind of as you touched upon earlier, you know, your roots are in education, right? You are an educator. Now you've been up here for, you know, three years. What are some of the policies you've kind of tried to work on education to kind of help California?
0: Yeah, so I haven't passed any, a, a lot of legislation. I passed one bill this year, that would look at class size here in California and just try to understand how many people are actually in each class, not how many people are registered at the school, but what are actual class sizes looking like so that we can start to get a better handle of what we can do and and the resources needed to reduce our class sizes. Uh, But I do sit on the budget subcommittee for education, which handles all of the budget for our K through 12, our community colleges, our CSUs and a significant part of our University of California system I've learned a lot. And uh, I think that where I have tried to weigh in, in this committee and in our budget repeatedly is in trying to make sure that we are not losing the forest for the trees, that we're emphasizing smaller class sizes, better teacher quality. Like to me, that's, it's not rocket science. Those are the two variables that are the most important in educational outcomes. And we often, you know, look, I believe very firmly in equity and access. I believe very firmly in, in making sure that we have nutritional needs met in our school system. But, but we also cannot forget the basics here. And, and too often we end up with new programs that are trying to solve the same old problems around equity or, or access or, or a uh, different issue, you know, bilingual education. Those are all important, but like we sometimes allocate too much of a share of our budget to those priorities and not the core ABC, so to speak of like, how do we make sure that our teachers and school employees are good, high-quality employees, that we're retaining them, that, that, we're, that we're attracting them, uh, that we're keeping them, right? Like, like, those are real important questions. And how do we get our class sizes under control? Uh, you know, how do we uh, better serve our students? Uh, and I think, again, that is what I've tried to emphasize in the budget. Uh, for my first two years in the Senate, I was one of three members of the Budget Subcommittee on Education, so I, I had a disproportionate voice, and now I'm one of four members. Uh, still a disproportionate voice. so I, I think that work is really, really important. It doesn't always get the headlines, but right. you know when I weigh in in these hearings, uh, when I weigh in with my colleagues, we are able to affect policy immediately and and I think that's important. Uh, and, and so the thing that I have just repeatedly said is we need to allocate more funding for base reserves uh, for our basic uh, you know uh, LCFF funding for our K through twelves. Uh, just, just give it to the local jurisdictions, let them determine how to spend it. Uh, but emphasize, you know, that we need smaller class sizes and better teachers at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, no, it makes sense. Uh, you know, you've been home, what, for what, two weeks now, uh, out of session, kind of what's your, uh, end of session looking like and uh, the rest of the year?
0: Well, uh, I'm campaigning for another office I can't really talk about. So, uh, I, have been spending a lot of time on the, uh, campaign trail. Uh, I, I took a trip to New York and D.C. We, a little bit of that was for Climate Week. Uh, a little bit of it was on the campaign side. Um, we had a big end of quarter. We just wrapped up. So I'm actually just starting to really get deep in the weeds on all the constituent and uh, district office stuff. Uh, I, I haven't visited my district office in about a month. It's my first time here in a <laughs> while. But, uh, you know, saying hello to my staff again, uh, getting familiar and refamiliar with um, A lot of the different things that are happening in my community, sitting down and meeting with my local mayors and city council members and supervisors and school boards, trustees, uh, trying to understand what they're hearing, what their needs are, meeting with local stakeholders, business groups, uh, labor union heads, uh, you know, uh, PTA heads, things like that. Just really trying to spend this time productively in hearing from the people that that will help me shape policy. And then also trying to shape our bill package for the coming legislative cycle, which I now know from experience will come faster than, uh, you know, I realize and, and trying to figure out what bills we want to emphasize, uh, what bills we want to introduce. You know, this is an important task of mine, and I'd love to have a strong bill yeah. package going into my last year in the Senate.
1: Kind of what, what are you hearing in the district? Kind of what's on top of mind of, of many of the residents?
0: <clears throat> well, look, uh, obviously with Feinstein dying uh, a few days ago, that's, that's been uh, a big topic of discussion among Republicans and Democrats alike. Um, you know, I think a lot of the concerns around the government shutdown in DC have been top of mind. So, uh, you know, they, they used to say all politics is local. It feels like right now a, a lot of politics is national. And, and that happens even when you talk to like, you know, my local dry cleaner I was talking to the other day and he was talking to me about what's happening in Washington, DC. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we're seeing this happen and, and, you know, locally, I guess, you know, I, I still, I think concerns around rising crime here in Orange County are real concerns around homelessness. Mm. Um, but, you know, there's there's always a lingering concern around environment, what we can, you know, how is climate change going to continue to impact us? What can we do around it? Around it? Uh, we just had the wettest year on record or in, in modern history, I think. And uh, we may have another wet year next year. We've had unusual weather patterns across the board. I, I think folks are a little confused and, and frightened and anxious around the future that climate change is bringing to us. Um, so, so these are some of the issues I'm hearing about and, you know, everything else, including some of the bills we just passed out of the legislature, some of the bills the governor's vetoed. Uh, we hear about a lot of those as well.
1: Yeah, no, definitely interesting times. It always seems that way, but yeah.
0: Oh, I guess I should also mention, I represent orange, the cities of Orange and uh, Huntington Beach. So, you know, I hear a lot about the, uh, the book bans that they have been enacting lately. Uh, a lot of what is perceived as anti-LGBT sentiments in, in, in those cities and other parts of Orange County. So, you know, uh, we're facing these culture wars right now, and that's also just an unfortunate byproduct of the times we live in.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Well, Senator Men, thank you so much for joining us. Fascinating as always, and I uh, hope you enjoy the rest of uh, your break, and we'll see you up here next year. Hey, Jared, thanks so much for having right. me. really appreciate it.